So Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, the new slavery. Let's read our text, and then we'll pray and get to work. Romans 6, 15, these are the words of God. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Do you not know that to whom you yield yourselves as slaves to obey, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thanks be to God, for you were slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And having been freed from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you have yielded your members as slaves to impurity and iniquity, leading to more iniquity, even so now yield your members as slaves to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit did you have then from the things of which you are now ashamed? The result of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit unto holiness, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the subsequent gift of obedience that comes with it. We pray with faith and trust that you are at work in our lives. If only we will sit up straight and pay attention. We acknowledge that you are doing a great work among us, and for that we praise and glorify you and you alone. Open our minds, we ask, and open our hearts as we open up your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. All right, we are continuing our study in the book of Romans, which was written by the Apostle Paul. I had a conversation with my daughter yesterday. She said, why do you guys keep talking about Paul? Well, I mean, he's writing the letter, so we got to talk about that. But it was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was located in the belly of the beast, the eternal city, the city of Rome. And uh, I went there about a decade ago and walking around and you can see the great river and you can see all these historical things and, and they call it the eternal city for, for a reason, uh, though the Roman Empire of course collapsed in 410, I think it was. And so you, you, it's not eternal in that sense anymore. And God has a sense of humor, of course. But he's writing to the church in the belly of the beast, which is in Rome. Comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, the apostle had a lot of things to sort out among them. Just like we have things we have to sort out among our little church here, as we are 40 miles west of Babylon, I mean DC. So we have things we have to deal with. And one of the things that they had to deal with was getting a few doctrines squared away so as to promote unity in their church despite the external pressures that came from being under the thumb of Roman power. So you're in a church gathering and uh, eventually the uh, Nero would persecute the Christians in Rome. Claudius had sent them away, um, but they're back now and so who knows what's going to happen. Are we going to get kicked out of our own city and lose everything we have? There's all these external pressures from being uh, under the thumb of, of Rome. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the culture was called an honor and shame culture. And I want to quote from Michael Gorman, his book that I mentioned earlier, The Apostle of the Crucified Lord. Um, it was required reading in seminary, and I, I found it helpful. Listen to his explanation real quick of honor and shame culture, because it's definitely different than what we have now, but there are some similarities. He says, quote, 
simply defined, honor and shame refer to the ongoing attribution of law or loss of esteem by one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. In Roman society, this respect was based primarily on such things as wealth. So if you're wealthy, you get notoriety just because you're wealthy. Or education. If you're educated, then you're immediately on the top end of the social spectrum. Rhetorical skill, family pedigree, you know, great-grandpa was, an, was uh, the first emperor, so on. <laughs> Augustus was my great-great-grandfather. Well, if that's the case, you're in. You, are, you have it made, right? And, of course, he goes on political connections. These were the culture's status indicators. In this context, self-esteem would be conceived of as a ridiculous oxymoron. The only esteem one has is bestowed not by the self, but by the group. Collectivism there. In this environment, peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid, but is viewed as appropriate and welcome, end of quote. So essentially, if you wanted status, you needed to do whatever you could, seek, kill, and destroy in order to get to the top. So honor and shame. Honor was on that scale. You were honorable if you had the education, you had the status, so on. And you were shamed and thus exiled from your family, society. Um, some Muslim countries have this going on, right? A, a young lady converts to Christianity and she's immediately shunned from her family, from her culture. That's, that's that idea. So I, I say all that, in other words, to say this. Christianity, like in our day, was thrust into the public sphere as an alternative way of being human. And as a result, there was a whole lot of pressure to endure, a whole lot of persecution to endure. Christianity, when properly understood and practiced, can never hide in the shadows of a culture. If, if, you, if you go somewhere, and it doesn't take long to walk out the door here and find it, where Christianity has hidden itself from the culture, in the shadows of the culture, you have found a impotent version of Christianity. Christianity, when properly understood and practiced, can never, ever, ever hide in the shadows of culture. So its very nature is one that throws its weight around, its humble weight around, I should say, in order to make Christ known. We deal with the issues as they come. We don't hide from them. And so Paul, he explains this major uh, problem underneath it all in Romans 1 through 3. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. He's kind of gone through what is the problem with humanity. The problem is we don't glorify God. We, don't, we, we've, we give ourselves over to our lusts. We do all these terrible things because we've exchanged the glory of God for uh, for create the created order. We worship and serve the creation, not the creator. And then, uh, after Romans 1 through 3, he, he gives us the theological solution in Romans 4 and 5. And now he's in 6, 7, and 8 going to explore these themes in a manner as to assist the Roman Christians in their day-to-day -day living. What do you need to know to live for Christ today? That's kind of what he's talking about right now. So what Paul intends to do in this sh very short section is to expand on what he's already said in Romans 6, 1 through 14. And he does it while focusing on the issue of slavery and righteousness. So if you remember from a couple weeks ago, if you remember, I vaguely remembered. <laughs> I had to go back and look at my notes. Uh, it's been that type of uh, couple of weeks. See, for the Christian, death is no longer Lord. 
For the Christian, death is no longer Lord. For Jesus has vanquished death. So as a result of that truth, as a, as a result of that, we are now slaves to righteousness. So the, the freedom and liberty in Christ that we have, as opposed to the subjugation and the intimidation of, of Rome's version of, of freedom and liberty, right? the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome would go to the neighboring country and hold a gun to their head and say, well, you, know, you can serve us or die. Oh, those are great options. So Rome was quickly conquering the world through force, slavery, subjugation, um, imposing their immoral worldview on the world around him. And they grew very, very fast and very expanding um, much of the known world at the time. So the, the freedom and liberty of Christ, as opposed to the freedom and liberty of Caesar and Rome, uh, means that we're now freed by the grace of God to a life of obedience and service to this newly crowned king, Jesus the Lord. So you're brought out of slavery to sin and you're in relationship and obedience now to Christ as opposed to the Roman version, which was, was the complete opposite. You want to be free, then you need to serve Rome. Well, actually, no. If you want to be free, you have to serve Christ. So Paul is basically kicking Rome in the teeth here <laughs> underneath all of it. So it's Christ, not Caesar. In chapter 5, we should note, um, Paul speaks of Christ's death in chapter 5 five times. And then in chapter 6, he speaks of the believer's death 13 times. A lot of death talk in chapter 5 and chapter 6. In verses 3 through 8 of chapter 6 here, there are seven references to our union with Christ. Seven times he emphasizes our union with Christ. We've been brought into a union with Christ Jesus. So it's obviously a very dense section of Scripture, but Paul's point is very, very obvious. Jesus outshines Adam, sin, death, and unbelief at every turn. What Adam had done, Jesus had done better. What, what sin had done, Jesus had come to atone for. What death had done, Jesus died a better death and, and conquered death by being raised from the dead. Everything that the world had done that was evil and immoral and in rebellion, Jesus literally undo, undoes it. He flips it back on its head the right way that it's supposed to be. So if you have your Bibles, let's just w walk through the text and you can follow along as I go. So in verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, back in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul dealt with the very first objection to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which was the question of intentionally furthering sin in order to bring more grace. So if, if, <laughs> if it's true at the end of chapter 5 that, that the law entered into the discussion to increase the sin, well, now you have no excuse, right? Now I know what it means to covet. Covet, Paul will say in chapter 7. The law came in to increase the sin. It's like a flashlight. It showed the reality of the sin. If that's true, and then grace came in and abounded more and more, and thus Jesus dethroned the rule and reign of sin and death, then why wouldn't it follow that we just sin up a storm so that we can bring the reign of grace? If the law came in and that was a good thing so that more grace came in, well, we should sin more because then there's more grace. And then we get the best of both worlds. And Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. That's um, erroneous in every sense of the word. And now in verse 15, we have another objection to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Does God's grace in Christ nullify our ethical obligations? 
If we've been given the grace of Christ, does that mean then we don't have any other ethical obligations? Uh, does, does, is that how it works? If because of grace, we're no longer under the law or the Torah's condemnation, you can see how they're reasoning. I guess I'm no longer responsible to the law at all. I'm free from it. If that's true, are we now free to do as we please? And as we talked about two weeks ago, when Paul says you're not under law, you're under grace, he means you're not under the law's condemnation anymore. You are now under the grace of God. Grace has brought you from condemnation to obedience. That's what he's going to explore today. So it's not that we have no obligation to the law. You're not free from the obligation of the law. You're free from the condemnation of the law. And that's why I titled the sermon two weeks ago, Under Grace and Law, because <laughs> he's not saying what everybody else thinks he's saying. And that's just a matter of context and, and exegesis. So the grace of God, in other words, liberates you from sin. It doesn't somehow put you free inside of sin. Okay, You're con condemned because of sin. The law shows you that. It's not that grace frees you in that realm. It actually brings you out of that realm altogether. You are truly and wonderfully free. So Paul continues in verse 16. Don't you know... Don't you know that you're going to be a slave to something? Within human existence, there is the old slavery in Adam, the, the slavery of death and rebellion and lust and, and uh, transgressions. That's the old slavery. But now we have the new slavery, the new slavery in Christ, the slavery of righteousness and obedience. So every person on this planet yields, he says here, or offers themselves to someone or something as a slave. Everyone does it. Sin as a master, which produces death, or God as a master, which is an obedience which leads to faithfulness, a life of faith. So as a consistent, it's always consistent throughout the Bible. We've harped on that for a lot of times in our, in our uh, you know, looking at God's word, we see it everywhere. There's no neutrality. You will serve someone. You are going to be the slave. They are going to be the master. No one is no one's exempt from that. But, he says in verse 17, we should thank God. We should thank God. Why should we thank God? Because their allegiance and our allegiance took a major U-turn when they obeyed from the heart the doctrines laid out in the aforementioned passages. He mentions this, these doctrines that were uh, put in place, uh, a standard of teaching that we were committed to, the ESV says. So when the, when the King Jesus gospel is obeyed, when the teaching of the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ is adhered to, when we cling to that as Christians, to, as men, women, and children, we are freed. We're freed from sin and promised to being a slave of righteousness. That's verse 18. Now, it's interesting in verse 19, he speaks in human terms. He makes this weird side comment. I'm um, speaking in human terms. And the reason is because such an illustration about slavery can seem crass. Okay, I, I mentioned this earlier, but we think about slavery usually, what's the picture you think of? Ah, civil war, so, you know, chattel slavery with the subjugation of blacks. So immediately, you're, you're um, anachronistically already have a definition in mind when you hear the word slavery. Well, the same thing would have been true for the Roman Christians. 
They would have heard Paul speak of slavery and would have thought, my word, what is this man speaking about? So his little side comment here addresses that issue. I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm pulling from your world and I'm demonstrating the truth of, of slavery, that there's no neutrality, that everyone serves somebody. And the slavery in the ancient world, the slaves were actually only about one or two steps higher than the expendables on the bottom of society. You had the emperor at the top, you had the artisans, you had the governors, you had those types of people, um, you had political military leaders, they were on the higher end of the social stratosphere, right, the, the spectrum. And, and then below you had slaves who were treated poorly, and even women were treated poor, poorer than slaves. And then at the very bottom you had the expendables of society who you could just kill off and no one would care anyway. That was the Roman world. So when Paul speaks of slavery, just like we are aghast at what happened in American slavery system, so the Roman Christians would have been aghast at the very same thing. There's a historical thing going on here. So there's this new paradigm from which we work. We used to offer ourselves as slaves to impurity and iniquity, which inexorably leads to more and more of the same with no end in sight. That's the former Christian life. We offer our members, we offer ourselves, we offer our minds, our bodies, everything to impurity, to our lusts, giving ourselves over to those things. Now, he says, however, because we're in Christ, this is verse 19, we offer our being in person as slaves to righteousness, which inexorably leads to holiness and sanctification. So we're still offering ourselves. And the question is, who's your master? Are you offering yourselves to righteousness, which is, again, perpetuates itself. The more righteousness you offer yourself to, the more righteousness and justice and grace that, that's there. It's this never-ending stream. So whichever master you serve, two things are true. One, you are free from one, and now you're attached to the other. Okay, that's true. And then two, wherever you find yourself, fruit is a guarantee. Fruit is a guarantee. And I want to come back to this a little bit later. So the antithesis is found in verse 20, and there, as there is no neutrality. To be a slave to sin means to be free from righteousness. Okay, If you're a slave to sin, you are free from righteousness. You're not in that category. You're freed from it. There, there, again, there's no one foot in the door, one foot out the door mindset here. You're not halfway in, in Christ and thus halfway in in righteousness and then part of you is well I'm halfway in sin and then I just have this struggle he, he speaks of that in the next chapter but we need to believe the truth of the gospel not what we feel or what we think we need to anchor it in God's Word so there's no one foot out one foot in Paul says that to move from one is to be liberated into the slavery of another that's a paradox when you're liberated and freed from slavery to sin, you're liberated into the slavery of Christ. You're, you're enslaved to Him now, as He is your master. So, so the question looms in verse 21. Remember where you were before Christ. That word there in verse 21, you, you'll see it in your Bible, it says fruit. That word fruit is actually more of a sexual union type of word, which appears again in, in chapter 7, verse 5. The word fruit is actually, nuance can be nuanced to mean offspring. 
So the fruit or the offspring you produced, the children you had, so to speak, were shameful things leading to death. When you're dead in your sins and trespasses, you're a slave to unrighteousness. What are the children that you have? What are the, what's the fruit of that? More unrighteousness, more ungodliness, more lust, more covetousness. So that, that's true. But then he says in verse 22, being liberated from sin only to become a slave of Christ, the fruit or the offspring that you produce now that you're in Christ is holiness, which or sanctification, depending on your translations. It's um, hagios is the Greek word where we get holy. Um, I believe it's hagiosmos where it's sanctification or holiness. So both translations are trying to get the same, same point. But when you're liberated and put into slavery of Christ, the fruit that you produce now is holiness, and that ends in eternal life or life everlasting. So think of it in the imagery of, of pregnancy. To be pregnant with sin, which can only be hidden in gestation for so long, right? At some point, yeah, everybody knows you're pregnant. Well, that can only be hidden for so long, and that leads to the obvious problem of multiplied transgressions. Okay, if you look around our, our culture today, we keep having a lot of really bad children, metaphorically speaking. A lot of bad fruit comes from a humanist worldview. There is a lot of bad things that are now becoming more potently or palpably uh, visible to us when we, see, when we see it. So to be pregnant with righteousness, however, is to produce the fruit of everlasting life. If you are a human being made in the image of God and you are in Christ, you are now pregnant. <laughs> and that works for men and women, oddly enough. Uh, but you are pregnant with righteousness and you are to give birth. You are to offspring or, or f produce fruit that is in accordance to where you're at. So Paul wraps up the argument by drilling down in verse 23 to the main issue. While there are similar aspects to the slaveries, Similar aspects, for example, inevitable fruit will happen. Um, the master-servant language. There are similarities between the slaves to unrighteousness and the slave to Christ. There are similarities, but there are major differences as well, which is why we call it gospel. Because man is born into this world a sinner, the default factory setting, okay, the default factory setting is sinful covenant breaker. That's when you were in this world, that's where you're at. The only thing that paradigm does is earn the sinner the paycheck of death. The wages of sin is death. So when you work for sin, when you labor for sin, what is the thing that you earn? Death, period. That's it. However, there's another way forward, and this is where liberty, true liberty, is to be found. So the wages of sin is death is true. But you might think, well, the wages of grace, then, is eternal life. No. The wages of grace isn't righteousness and eternal life. There are no wages. Notice what he says in verse 23. Jesus didn't come to bring a works righteousness program. He came offering the free gift of grace. The free gift. So there are differences in the slaveries. One is a paycheck you earn. The other is a gift you receive. Not a paycheck. It's not, they're not wages. Paul trashes that 
concept because it doesn't apply. Jesus didn't come to sit you up straight so that you could go on and be the righteous person so that maybe he'll love you in the end. That is not Christianity. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He came to bring a free gift of grace to a world neck deep in sin. That's the gospel, the good news. So, the, so there are no wages in that. The only wages humanity can earn apart from Christ is death and malignity. That's it. Death and destruction. So that's the old slavery. The old slavery can't earn its liberation from sin because to be a slave of sin is to actually be quite happy about it. You've seen the death scorts in front of an abortion clinic. You've talked to them. They don't talk back. But you've experienced what it's like for someone to be quite happy with their state of slavery to sin. And it's disturbing. It's disturbing. And, and why... And we think we can just go be nice to them. <laughs> uh, the, sometimes the, the Catholics will show up and they're really, really kind to the death scorts. Maybe we'll give them some water or something like that. Well, why would the sinner who is happy about his sin want to be liberated at all? He thinks himself to be free. No one tells a free man that he, he can be free. He's already free in his mind, right? He thinks he's free. Rather, the free man needs to know he's not free, but that's what the gospel does. It makes you truly free. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's, let's figure out ways to apply this. At issue here is the problem of liberty, not slavery. The issue is the problem of liberty, not slavery. The slavery is always consistent. The issue is, what is liberty? What is liberty and justice for all? That's, that's the question. The sinner who's enslaved to sin is free from righteousness, but the thing is, he thinks himself to be free because he's not having to pay tribute and adulation to the God he hates. I'm free. It's kind of the, you know, the old atheist thing. God doesn't exist, and I hate him. And you're so passionate about someone who doesn't exist. That's ironic. Um, but, but he thinks himself, the sinner who doesn't have the grace of God in his life, who's dead in his sins and trespasses, thinks himself to be free because he doesn't have to pay homage and adulation and praise to the God he knows exists, whose image he, he or she is made in, but he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't want to do that, so now he, he's free. I'm a free person because I'm not constrained by God and his terrible word, as they might postulate. So he, the sinner, needs to know that he has a false version of liberty and that only Christ gives us the true liberty for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Paul says in Galatians. So the man who is not free but thinks himself to be free needs to know that there is a better slavery than the one that he has going on. There's a better slavery. There is a slavery that is actually freedom. There is a freedom that produces actual sanctification, real-time holiness, real-time love, real-time grace and mercy to those in society, real-time justice, you might even say. There is a liberty that swallows up the fear, the guilt, and the shame, a liberty that frees you to be the person you were created to be. That is the gospel of free grace. 
That is the gospel of free grace. Now, <clears throat> people get squeamish when you talk about free grace. They, get, they sometimes will get squeamish, even in reform circles. They, they react sometimes the same way that people reacted in Paul's day. If we start talking about forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of the adultery, forgiveness of the pornography, the abortion, the murder, the hatred, the lying, and so on, those sins cannot possibly be forgiven, right? Well, no, they can be by the blood of Christ. And when we start talking about that type of forgiveness, if we say that the gospel covers those sins and makes a person new, then I guess anything goes. That's the argument. Then I guess we can just do whatever we want. It's the same reaction that Paul had when he wrote the letter to Romans. He's anticipating objections. He knows what they're going to say. All this talk of free grace, that seems way too good to be true. That's like the warranty you get with the product. I don't know. Are you really going to cover this if it goes wrong? And then you read the fine print and no, they don't. And then, and then you feel like you got you know, the wrong end of the deal here. So people, when you have this free grace mindset, when you preach the free grace of God, people think that you're an antinomian, that you're against the law of God. And then you tell them, well, you're actually a theonomist who loves the free grace of God. And then you really start to confuse people. <laughs> but here we are. The free grace of God is the only thing that liberates. It's the only thing that liberates. And it liberates by unshackling you from sin and death and shackling you to the resurrected Christ who is much more kind, much more gracious. This type of gospel preaching is counterintuitive to our American eyes and mind. We think that freedom means being unconstrained all the way through. We think freedom is just being unconstrained. We think we can pound our chest, fly our magic sky claws, we call flags. We can repeat our socialist pledges, drop bombs all over the world. And then we hear the sound of a B-52 bomber and we yell with containable, uncontainable exuberance, I should say. That's the sound of freedom, boys. That's the American way. See, no, the sound of freedom... The sound of freedom is the last breath of Christ on the cross. That's the sound of freedom. The sound of freedom is not the ways of Roman or even American subjugation. We are told at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 that the just shall live by faith, which means that faith is an all-of-life slavery to the governing liberation of God in Christ. I'm going to say it again because it sounds counterintuitive. If we're going to live, if the just live by faith, we need to know that faith is in all of life slavery to the governing liberation of God in Christ. We're liberated to be governed by God. That's freedom. So the gospel doesn't save us in order to make us um, autonomous drones whose sole purpose is to feed our wanton lusts. Jesus didn't rescue us so we could go on our own way as though we were hitchhikers walking on the road of despair and he had a big rig and he pulls up, picks us up and he takes us to the next stop and then he smacks us on the back and says, good luck, you're on your own now and then we'll never see each other again. That's not the interaction of the gospel. The gospel is a new slavery, one that gives us a backbone so we can walk straight. One that gives us new glasses with which we can see the world rightly. One that heals our wounds and gets us back on the bike that is the image of God. When you fall down and scrape your knee, God brings it back. That's the gospel. 
What we are after is the image of God being established in a person. Kids, we want the image of God being established inside of you. You are made in the image of God, and the only way for that to be perfected in you is Christ himself. When you come to Christ by the free gift of grace, you come to have yourself put back together. This is why it's a slavery that actually makes sense, by the way, because it actually liberates you. It liberates you. Sin chips away at the sinner and, and, and the culture that he participates in. It's just degradation after degradation. Okay? Our culture is on a steep decline, a major downgrade in morality and righteousness, and that's because it always chips away. But the opposite is true too. Righteousness chips away at a person. Righteousness chips away at you. And when it chips away at you, it's going to chip away at the rest of the world around you as well. And that leads to eternal life. So you will unquestionably serve. It's either sin or righteousness. That's it. And the proof of this servitude is what fruit is produced. What is the fruit? Take your family for a moment. Where, what, is, what fruit is there? What fruit is there? Is it holiness? Is it righteousness? Is it the kingdom? Or, or is it constant friction in your marriage? Constant bickering? Constant fear? Um, uncertainty? Lack of faith, unbelief, right? What's the fruit in your own family? Take our current uh, social order in America. If we're going to be Christians the way we're supposed to be, then we're going to have to deal with the surge and scourge of socialism and secular humanism. And again, the answer to socialism isn't a little bit more socialism. Okay? There is no liberty and freedom apart from Christ, not in Marxism or socialism or communism, not in abstract humanist ideas about law and justice either. Oak trees do not produce bananas. Rebellious antinomian cultures do not produce freedom. Okay? This, this idea that somehow we're going to you know, politically maneuver ourselves into more freedom is wrong all the way through. It's not to be found there. It's not to be found in David Hume's version of, of humanism, which uh, certainly impacted our founding fathers. And, and that's, you know, we're kind of reaping what we've sown there as well. It's not going to happen. Oak trees don't produce bananas. You can't get them that way. So how are we going to try and produce in a culture anything righteous apart from the gospel and law of God? It's not going to be done. It'll never happen. So true spiritual freedom will always have its, at its foundation um, Christ Jesus himself, always. We have downstream lawlessness and recklessness in our streets and in our political halls, and upstream from that is this horrific fruit of a worldview that believes that sinful man is free and somehow sinful man is able to create an ordered society. And guess what? It just doesn't work. You, cr you can't order yourself, you can't order your family in terms of sin and unrighteousness. You, you can't order your life in terms of autonomy and selfishness. It doesn't work. You can't order a culture in terms of humanistic law, which is actually lawlessness. It can't be done, which means we need the white-hot gospel of the kingdom right now. That's what we need, most importantly. 
And we need to preach this white hot gospel until we're blue in the face. You see, the gospel doesn't come to us because we're in a position of neutrality, a position of ambivalence, uh, a position of being wishy-washy and apathetic. No, the gospel comes to us when we were slaves to sin. And we didn't know we were slaves to sin. We called it freedom. I was living my best life now. I was doing whatever I wanted. It was great. We, we don't know that. Sinners don't know that they're enslaved to sin. Just like uh, America's collective mind has been coerced into submission through the tool of fear, so many people gen, you know, genuinely believing that at any moment they're going to walk outside, get the virus, and drop dead in a matter of seconds. So much fear. And because of that crisis, which is a self-induced crisis, think of the Think of the, 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 the meme where the kid sticks the stick in the wheel and falls down and blames the stick. You put it there, dummy. Congratulations. <laughs> the, we have, because of this fear, we have decided that we should just surrender basic God-given rights altogether. And why? Why is that taking place? Well, I mean, people think that the state gives you rights, for one. Uh, Christians fall into that too, but that's nonsense. Paul's, Paul's mindset here when it comes to this, he says there are, there, there are zero ounces of neutrality in the world. You can't find it anywhere. There's no neutrality to be found, which means several things. One, everyone is a slave to someone or something. Everyone is. It's either sin or righteousness, right? Two, everyone will bear fruit consistent with that slavery. Everyone will bear fruit in your own life, the life of your family, the life of your church, the life of your county, the life of your state, the life of your nation, the life of the world. It all's downstream from there. Everyone will produce fruit. Three, but, and again, fruit consistent with the slavery, sin, or Christ. Three, liberation is objectively defined and only goes one way. You aren't liberated by going into sin. That's the temptation. We think if we'll sin a little bit, we'll be freer. doesn't go that way. You're liberated by leaving the sin behind and going into true freedom of Christ. It's a one-way street. That's it. You can't go back. You will try to go back. You will think you're being free. Oh, if I only watch this or if I only say this or I only do that, maybe I'll be freer as if idolatry is able to ever deliver on its promises. No, it only goes one way. And fourth... Everyone will obey their master. Everyone will. When he says that we're not under law, but under grace, he doesn't mean that since we're not under law, we don't have to worry about ethics, we don't have to worry about morality at all, because grace means that I don't have to be obligated to a life of obedience. I'm in Christ. I got God's grace. I'm not obligated to obey him anymore because I got what I needed. No, that's damnable heresy. Obedience is still Required. It seems backwards, but it's true. The only way to be liberated from the old slavery and into the new slavery is through the obedience of faith, and that is not works righteousness. Grace still demands and requires obedience. We're not free from the condemnation of the law by grace so that we don't have to obey anymore. It simply means we've been put in our proper place by that grace so that we can actually obey from a heart that's been transformed. Notice he, he mentions the heart. Um, 
I lost track of that verse. Uh, verse 17, from the heart, he says. So it's, think of it in this, in this way. Justification always gives way to sanctification. Okay? If you're justified in Christ, it always gives way to sanctification. If it isn't holiness and sanctification, it's not justification. That's the train of thought. That's how you know. So for the Christian, the problem of justice and condemnation for actual sins is solved and remedied by mercy. Right? What do we do with the sins? What do we do with the sins? We've got the gift of grace. Well, what happens to the sins? Christ dies for them. That's mercy. So no harm, no foul there. But, so God gave a gift as an act of mercy. And because of that, justice is not compromised for part of that gift was Christ who satisfied the law's demands on our behalf. But for the unbeliever, however, there is a problem with justice. It's right and they don't like it. That's the issue. The fixed principle is, a, is the person of God who is the just judge. So there's, no, there's never a problem with justice biblically defined. There's just a problem with sinners who think that they know what justice is apart from Christ. So either way, God is just and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So as we wrap this up, just a, just a couple more things here real quick. I want us to be reminded today of the gospel of free grace. The gospel of free grace. Just when you think it's a concept out there, know that it's a concept in here. Let us not be tempted to go back to Egypt thinking things were better in the old slavery. No, don't, don't be tempted there. The fight for sanctification, the fight for holiness in the life of the believer as it extends out into the world and all of man's institutions is a fight for a lawful obedience. A lawful obedience. It's the law of liberty for a reason. See, in Christ, we were set free to now obey Him. In sin, we couldn't obey, even though we were supposed to obey. And now we've been set free as His slaves because we're supposed to obey, and now we can. The heart of flesh is gone. The heart of stone is gone. The heart of flesh is now there. And what He has called us to is a life that reflects the image of Christ which is being renewed and restored in us by the Spirit each and every day. So friends, we must offer ourselves. We must offer ourselves as humble servants of the Most High. We must offer our bodies, our minds, our hands, our hearts to God in service of Him and neighbor. We must fight to see the new slavery become the working reality in our lives, the lives of our families and the lives of those around us, our neighbors included. So may God grant us grace to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your divine sovereignty and providence that you have elected us, chosen us, brought us out of the miry pit. You have set our feet on the solid ground of Christ. So Father, I pray that we would be people who don't look at this house building project and think that, well, we can build our lives on sinking sand, as if that were logical or even possible. We thank that you've, you've given us a renewed mind, renewed heart, so that we can build our house on the rock that is Christ. So when the rains come, and indeed they do come, we will be able to withstand. And Father, I do pray for our nation.
We deserve nothing short than a repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve nothing short of destruction because we have murdered image bearers in the millions. We deserve nothing short of your wrath. And Father, you would be just to pour it out. And indeed, we know you are pouring it out in many ways with confusion, with subjugation, with concepts that are alien to your gospel, concepts that are only fit for the old slavery. Father, I pray that you would light a fire in your church. May your church be um, brought to its knees in repentance so that lasting change, lasting uh, solutions like freedom in Christ would would be adhered to, Um, that the church wouldn't hide in the shadows of culture as if that were even consistent with Christianity, that instead we would be at the forefront of the repentance line and at the forefront of change, godly change, holy change, a sanctification in our world that perhaps none of us could have ever imagined. We ask and pray for your will to be done as Christ is our King. In his his name I pray, Amen. amen.